Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. We're talking about persons of the Trinity, but I think we can talk about persons of the Trinity as especially the work of the Holy Spirit. We can identify what the Spirit is doing in a practical way. I mean, we can do this with all the persons of the Trinity, but what I would say about the work of the Holy Spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit is the practice of Christianity. So I think we often get the idea of the Holy Spirit being the most vague, but I I think there's some misunderstanding because the Holy Spirit is the one who is indwelling and immediately interactive and enables us to walk as Christ walked. And It's through the Holy Spirit that we have the relationship with God through Christ and with one another. And so the fruits of the Spirit are all those practical fruits that are talking in love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that are talking about our interaction with one another and God. So the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to go on in the way of Christ. The way that Jürgen Moltmann has put it, and he's written perhaps one of the key texts on the Holy Spirit in the 20th century, the Spirit is more than just one of God's gifts among others. The Holy Spirit is the unrestricted presence of God in which our life wakes up, becomes holy and entirely living, and is endowed with the energies of life. So if we had to say what is the gift of the Holy Spirit, You know, people might think, oh, a particular capacity or ability. But the thing that the New Testament is getting at here in in Moltmann's quote, too, no, the gift of the Holy Spirit is life. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. And the only place that we have life, real abundant life, is in and through the presence of God. And so when, in Scripture, when it talks about us receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, that can be equated with salvation. That is salvation. If you don't have the Holy Spirit or you don't have the gift of the Holy Spirit or however you want to say this, you do not have the presence of God. You are not, you do not have the indwelling presence of God. You do not have life and so you're given over to death. He certainly gives us many gifts, but those gifts of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, are the manifestations of the life that he gives. We might talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit as the parousia. You normally think of the parousia as the second coming of Christ. But the way that Christ describes his own resurrection and ascension, he says that I'll ascend that the Holy Spirit might come, And the idea is not that Christ is absent and the Holy Spirit present, but rather in and through the Holy Spirit we have the presence of Christ in a fashion different than when Christ was here on earth. Certainly there will be a second appearing of Christ, and that may be the the language of appearing may be the correct way of saying it rather than a second coming, because Christ has not left us, and so when he appears to us, it may be that he's made evident where he has always been. The idea throughout scripture is that you can equate being in the presence of God with salvation and to be cast out of the presence of God is to be damned in some way. 
given over to death. You do not have the sustenance of the presence of God. If you think about the true trees in the garden, you know, what did the tree of life represent? Well, it represented the presence of God, that they had access to God. And when the tree is removed, so too the access to God. And so that's the significance of the tree being restored. You know, the tree of life, I think, only appears in Genesis and Revelation. But maybe everything in between is about the restoration of the tree of life, which is, I think, the marker of the presence of God. And so there is the the sense in which the gift of the Holy Spirit is then the renewed presence of God or the renewed access of our ability to come to God. We might then equate all of what's happening in Scripture, all of what God is doing in history, as the sending of the Holy Spirit. God's mission is nothing less than the sending of the Holy Spirit from the Father through the Son into this world. Book on mission. You know, this is the idea that it's not just that we are missionaries. No, that God is on mission that God is one who's going forth, and the way in which God is going forth into the world is in and through the Holy Spirit, that the world would not perish but would have life in and through the Spirit. The Gospel of John says it quite simply, what is brought into the world from God through Christ's life is, I live and you shall live also. For the Holy Spirit is the source of life and brings life into the world. And this, you know, Moltmann's picture here whole life full life unhindered indestructible everlasting life i hope you don't take it as a kind of false religiosity here because as we go along here i think we can actually begin to identify the nature of this life that we have in other words we can identify what death is not just the end of life at you know when our body gives out but there is a kind of living that is characterized in scripture as a a kind of living death you know you're animated by sin and death and so when we talk about life we certainly mean breathing and presence of god but we can also begin to identify that life in terms of reconciliation you know think presence of god presence of other people what is death absence of god alienation from god and other people that those things all go together. Hi, Come on Dave. in, Dave. Sharon will explain to you everything that I've said up to now. The gift of the Holy Spirit is life, and life is something we live with each other. Life together. Yeah. Like yeah. Salvation. Yeah. And the opposite of that is death separate from one another. To be alienated, alienated from each other, alienated from God. And so a lot of people are dead. Uh, they just don't know it. The picture then of life and death is these two categories. You know, it's not just the people in the graveyards dead. In the New Testament, all sorts of people are dead. We might summarize by saying, in the tradition of the Holy Spirit, in the Christian tradition, the Holy Spirit is the one who, among other things, indwells. He writes God's law on our heart. He transforms us into a child of God, you know, and think here both Romans and Galatians that we cry out, Abba, Father. That is, our relatedness to God is in and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
so that literally our adoption into the family of God, if you feel that, I mean, you have that relatedness, and feeling, I think it's okay to use that language. Let's not get rid of the feeling aspect. I don't want to reduce it to that. That the Holy Spirit is the one that bears witness and enables us to be witnesses to Christ. And the Holy Spirit is pictured as the one who leads into all truth. This is, you know, Jesus, the promise when I... Uh, leave and the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all truth. And I think that leading into all truth is a first-hand apprehension experience of the truth. Let me st- state this in a kind of technical, well I don't know how technical it is, but we could say the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ is specifically the Spirit who enables one to go on in the same way as Christ. We could extend this out that in our capacities for decision making and our capacities for relating to other people and our capacities that is that scripture is not just something we read and set aside the idea is that here is an understanding of a model or a pattern that we're to follow and the holy spirit is the one that enables us to follow that pattern We've talked about the book of Acts as kind of ending abruptly and the church then is acting out the fifth act of the play where there's only four acts. I think that's right, that this story continues. And it's not that it grows, you know, less interesting or that, no, in fact, the story is the real world redemption that is being worked out after Christ is in fact the significant thing that Christ came to do. I mean, just think in terms of the numbers of people that have heard and been brought into the church and uh, that we're talking about a multiplicity of people, an exponential number greater than those who originally heard Christ when he was here on earth. And so that is, we can attribute that to the work of the Spirit. The key thing that I, I want to talk about today is that the the work of the Spirit is connected to the Word. Now, this could be misunderstood or misconstrued, because when we say Word, some people say simply the Bible, but I'm using the Word here with a capital W. And so the Word is Christ, certainly inclusive of Scripture, but not exclusive to Scripture. So I've just said it in the previous way that I did it, that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to take up the word and walk, enables us to carry out, go on in the way of Christ. So it's not that, you know, oh, the Holy Spirit simply is confined and constrained by the grammar or the vocabulary of Scripture. That's a misunderstanding of what the word of Christ is. Scripture is the place that we encounter Christ, But the living word of Christ is animated for us then in and through the work of the Spirit. Maybe a way of illustrating this is to talk about the difference between a Greek understanding of language or logos and a Hebrew understanding. The Hebrew word is dabar. As you know, in the Greek, it's the word logos. But what I think logos means in the New Testament is actually what dabar means not what the Greeks meant by logos. 
this is W.H. Poteet, he says, the Greek words get their meaning in being part of an immutable and impersonal mode of discourse related to some ultimate principle of impersonal order. Did you hear that? It's unchanging, it's impersonal, having nothing to do with persons or personality. You think here in terms of the Greek forms, you know, the Platonic forms, that's not a person, those are principles or ideas or, you know. The, the idea is that it's not connected to the person of God directly. For the Hebrews, words get their meaning in being expressions of the personal. That we are persons and God is a person in communication, in communion. Think of all the language around this idea. What makes us human, what makes God a person is the same thing. And it's all interconnected with this Hebrew idea. So in a sense, I think we're fostered with the notion of a a Greek idea. And we need to change that up. And this is important, this may sound very abstract, but it's actually an important idea in the way that we do theology. Is the goal in theology to line up all of the propositions and the doctrines? Not say that it's not important to have propositions and doctrines, but if that is the end point, you're left with the impersonal. So the goal is to meet Jesus, is to understand who Christ is, to understand the living Christ in our brothers and sisters. And that's two ways, two modes of doing theology. I think modernist theology of every stripe tended to have a Greek understanding of the project. And we need to, in some way, get beyond that. Another way of illustrating it, and the way that the Bible does it, is the picture of salvation is over and against what happens at Babel in regard to language. You know, Babel is where the confusion of people come about, also the rebellion of man, the divisions that are made among people. You could relate all of that to Babel. What's happening at Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. If language is what divides us and alienates us from God and one another at Babel, at Pentecost, it's the word, the word of Christ, that draws us to God and one another. It wasn't that the people there on Pentecost were all Hebrew-speaking, and that's the whole point. They were all Hebrews. They were all Jews. But they were Jews from all over the world. And so it goes through and it lists, and I think that's the significance of the list, you know, Parthians and Medes. and The idea is that all of these people then, even though they can't understand one another's language, the language is no longer a barrier. This is a reality, I think, any of us that have been overseas, that being in Japan 20 years, yeah, the language was sometimes a difficult barrier in terms of communication, but the word of Christ brought about a communion in spite of that barrier. And I think that's always the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we move from a failure of language, a failure of people in Genesis, to the idea of God's effective presence, that he's effectively present to us in the Word through the Spirit. 
Another way of comparing it, and I, there's a kind of danger in this comparison. I don't mean to equate circumcision and baptism, but we might compare the two. That circumcision is a kind of failure of a sign. It's a sign without its signified. That is, when we use signs, you know, you see a sign on the road, get gas, it means there's a gas station. Uh, and that's all we mean by sign. And, you know, the sign points us to what it signifies. That the sign and the reality of the sign are usually drawn together. But what's happening in circumcision is you just have the sign without the reality. The sign was to point to a changed up character, a changed up life. And that was the character, way that Paul characterizes the law. I think we could do all religion that way. Or we can talk about human language apart from Christ in that way. That it's often signification signifying nothing. Would you say that idolatry kind of begins whenever there is a sign without a sign, or without, what was the word you used? Signify. Yeah, without a signify. I think that's a good way to put it. Same thing. You've got the idol, and, you know, it's even unclear if you've ever been around idols. I, I think it's unclear when you go to a Buddhist temple or a Shinto. It's unclear what the idol is doing, you know, what the function of the idol is. Is the idol God? It's certainly not in Japan, I don't think in India. The idol's not God, per se, but the idol is a sign of something. But what is a sign of, whatever it is, it's not accessible. This is my understanding of idolatry, which is a little different than maybe the, the typical. And that is the idol does not make imminent what is transcendent. The my, idol makes completely absent and apparently transcendent through this imminent sign. There's nothing there. Paul says the idol is nothing. You cannot obtain the essence of whatever it is the idol points to. So yeah, I think idolatry is a wonderful illustration of the functioning of language apart from Christ. The problem here, don't, get, don't mistake here, the problem is not with language. The problem is, is with the language users, right? Because of our imagining that we can gain the essence of things in and through signs. That's the problem with idolatry. They imagine the essence is there in the sign. In a philosophical understanding, this is all that philosophy is doing. It's imagining that you can gain the essence of reality in and through human language per se. And then the Holy Spirit begins to take place because it is not just, it is the, the reality of the presence of God. With the Holy Spirit, I believe that sign and signified come together. And this is the significance of baptism, the Lord's Supper, the fellowship of the saints. Maybe the, the language here we're using is too complicated. We're actually just saying a, a simple thing. And that is what we're saying, the meaning of what we're saying, or the reality of what we're saying, come together. Our words aren't empty. You know, if you want to think about it in terms of being able to say something and keep your promise. At a wedding, you say, I do. 
we are enabled to do what we say. I mean, that's the way Christ characterizes Pharisees and others. They don't do what they say. But that's not just the problem of the Pharisees. That's the human predicament. It's not just that we don't keep promises. Our sin is disenabling, if there is such a word. Uh, that is, it is crippling. And so, I, if you compared circumcision, sign and signified are separate. The point of baptism and a, a life of, that lives out baptism is the sign and the signified are brought together through the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is the presence of God in the Word of God. I believe that's a way of talking about what Christ has accomplished. To make it most simple, we pass from falsehood to believing a lie to believing and dwelling in the truth. You know, it's lies and with lies you have death, separation, absence, just signs. With the truth, you're engaged in, in reality. I've probably said this before, but this reminds me of my life experience working at Branchers. When I, I realized, like, okay, I should stop talking about Jesus, peace, love. Instead, I need to start, like, loving and respecting my boss and my co-workers instead of talking about it and then not doing it. No. Because it's easier to be a smart aleck or just not not respect or not really love, but rather than just to step back. Because, like, what you're saying, we are even taught, even in the church, with my experience, is that the talk is, like, almost primary, the walk will come after, or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Instead of just being like, okay, how about I just step back and see what it means to actually love love them. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us can talk a good shtick, but we can't walk a straight line. That Yeah, that's exactly it. That, and of course, in a sense, that's his sin, is that we're incapable of performing righteousness. That's Paul's picture in Romans 7. We're split. We know in our head, he says, I, you know, I know the law. It's righteous and good but I am incapable of carrying it out. So I think through the Holy Spirit, that split is put away with. So what we're describing in the connection of the Word and the Holy Spirit, it's not just that something about God is revealed to us, but God himself as Spirit comes to us in the Word. It's not that, oh, we have some new information now. You know, I think this is what, people confuse about the Apostle Paul. What did the Apostle Paul do? What what happened to him on the road to Damascus? Did he find out something about Judaism or he was, you know, that in some way his conscience was seared or no, Paul meant Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus then makes the difference. That's the picture is that, you know, John Howard Yoder quoting Hebrews says, "Now we see Jesus." And that makes all the difference. So God's word is not something separate from God's identity. See, that's our problem. We can say things that we don't mean. We can lie. God can't do that. God doesn't do that. God's word and is his identity. His identity and his word in Christ through the spirit are one. And so when God gives us his presence in the spirit through the word, this is God abiding with us, as Christ promised. Bart does this in, a, in an interesting way. He says that we could talk about the subject, object, and predicate 
of the revelatory act. We could talk about the revealing God, you know, God the Father, the event of revelation, Christ, and the effective presence of revelation. I think that's okay if, if you don't break that up too, too much. We don't want to fall back into a modalism and keep these things completely separate. But I think we can talk about God in terms of the communion of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And salvation is our entry into that communion. What's the word communion? It's from the root communication. The communication, you know, for us that sounds sort of light. Because when we communicate, we don't think about it ourselves being in the communication. But I think with the gift of the Holy Spirit, we take on this characteristic of God. Now we are in the communication too. We can be there. We can inhabit our words so that our words are no longer empty. Somebody whose words are all empty, I'm not sure what's left. And somebody who's a liar or has based their life on lies, and this is just the human condition, I think that we can make a shell of ourselves. This is Bart again. Thus to the same God who unimpaired unity is revealer, revelation, and revealedness is also ascribed an unimpaired variety in himself, precisely this threefold mode of being. Van Hooser has written a book. He's tried to take Bart's idea and fill it out. There, there is a, a kernel of truth here. But the main point is all of this language is language of communion and communication. Let me state it in a kind of odd way. And that is to say that salvation is revelation. Now again, that might sound weak because we say, oh no, revelation's when we get something new. Yes, but you understand what's being revealed here is not just new ideas or new propositions. What's being revealed is God himself. God comes to us in Christ through the Spirit. And so the threefold Father, Son, and Spirit is in revelation. That is the three parts of salvation. This gets real flat in a lot of theology. I always think of, um, I won't say his name, but a particular theologian who says that we have salvation and then revelation tells us about the salvation as if the salvation occurs outside of the revelation and so the then you break up the you know the work of Christ that he dies for our sin but all that stuff he says you know that's not that's secondary and that's very often the way people read the new testament the way they read the gospels Well, you know, he's saying stuff there, but we get to the real stuff in the works of salvation. Wait a minute, you're saying the the life of Christ is not part of the work of salvation? So I think it's just a misunderstanding of what salvation is. Salvation is this revealedness of God that begins in the birth of Christ, in the life of Christ, and it's not just in in the death of Christ. One time you said if the universal problem is a lie or deception, then it would make sense for the universal solution to be revelation. Let me restate what you just said. If the problem is a lie, and I think it is, I think that's there in Genesis, that's there in Scripture, that sin is equated with a deception, with a lie. First of all, you've got to get the significance of the lie. Because if Christ or God is communion and communication, 
in himself and then a shared communion and communication with us, what would be the most effective disruption and displacement of that? A lie. A lie cuts that off. And so if a lie then is the thing that separates us from God, this is what it means when Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just any truth, but he's the truth over and against the lie. He's the the reconciliation that comes about over and against the, the sin. That gets at the idea. And again, you know, you could overstate it. If you misunderstand the word revelation here, but you get, get the full substance of the word revelation in that Christ is the word. So revelation is not simply a word about God. Rather, his word or spirit is his presence in salvation. This is a theologian named Ted Peters. He says, our experience of Jesus in history and the Holy Spirit in the church is an experience of God actually present. To turn it around, our experience of God is countered with God's experience of us. The event of salvation consists inter alia in the incorporation of an alienated creation history into the divine light proper. Just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are present and communing and uh, with one another, that inter personal relationship in the Trinity is one that it passes from just being something within God to being inclusive of all things, that we become co-participants in the Trinity. This is why the Eastern Orthodox word, I think, here is is a, a good, you know, deification. And the idea is that we become co-participants. It's not that we become God, but we become participants in the Trinity. So there's a first order entry into the presence of God. So he, he goes on to say, God's relationship to the world ad extra, over and against inter alia, corresponds to the interpersonal relationality ad intra. That is, as God is in himself, the imminent Trinity, so he is to us all through the economic trinity. You know, you know the language of economic trinity just means the, the work of redemption through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We often talk about the economic trinity as in some way being separate from the imminent trinity. Imminent trinity as God is in himself to himself imminent trinity, economic trinity being God to us as he reveals himself in redemption. But we can say the economic trinity is the imminent trinity. There's no difference. That The way in which God redeems us is not something from who God is in himself. This is God in himself. And that's John 17 is saying that you'll be one as we are one. That's the prayer, I think. That's the high priestly prayer. So Jesus Christ is that man in whom God has defined himself as a human God. I think we should say that in a kind of shocking way because humanity and divinity are brought together in Christ. And this is the the idea of Christocentrism. It means the finitude, the historicity, the humanity, the subjection to suffering and death which characterizes the life of Jesus are now considered attributes of God's being proper. This is just where I come out on this, that it's not that 
God is defined by the humanity of Christ. But the humanity of Christ is not something separate from who God is. This may again sound strange to you if you don't know about the history of the church councils in which they're trying to break all this up and say, well, there's the humanity and there's the, the divinity. No, we don't, we don't need to do that. So since God is self-related, he can be world-related. The reiteration as God's relation to us is the correspondence to God's relatedness, analogia relationis. I don't know, you've heard of entus, analogy of being. But this is Bonhoeffer and Jungle. They say, well, that doesn't quite get it. It's not the analogy of a being out there in the world. It's the analogy of the relation of God and, our, and human relations. And this is Bonhoeffer's you know, doctoral dissertation. The way that I put it, the Holy Spirit is the reiteration. And the, the word reiteration is, think here of writing, you know, being graphed, you know, written upon is the reiteration within us of God's self-relation. By definition, the word does the work of reiteration. What is baptism? It's a true circumcision, right? It's a true sign. Circumcision can be a sign that is just a mark. Writing can just be signs on a page. But the image here is of signs in the flesh, signs in the person, not tattoos. I sometimes worry about tattoos. I'm afraid they're, that we're trying to write in the flesh in a fashion that doesn't capture the, the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Let me end with this thought. And this is, this is kind of a separate idea, but it, I think it's a continuation of this idea. And that is that part of what it means to be lost in scripture is we're subject to shame and death and this is often pictured as nakedness we're naked and ashamed you know in the book of revelation the last thing you want is to somebody identify you at the wedding supper of the lamb and say wait a minute you don't have on a white robe of righteousness and you're thrown out because you don't have the, the clothing that's required what's the required clothing well I think we're clothed as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. And so the picture is we are clothed and those who are clothed in Christ will not be found naked. Paul talks about being, you know, clothe yourselves in Christ, put on Christ. Otherwise, you're going to be put to shame. You're going to be found naked. We can't sow our own fig leaves. And that's the, the, the project of pride, I think. For you all, all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. The sign and the signified are brought together. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, revelation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. The picture is that God covers us in his presence. And I think that is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the down payment of the work of God uh, that is presently at work among us. You know, and one time in philosophy, 
or worldviews, I don't know, some class, you mentioned your whole thing about tattoos, and it was like right after I got a tattoo. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> he doesn't think I'm a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't have a, actually a very clear thought there, because I, I, I don't... I don't think we need to attribute great psychological significance to tattooing. But I think there can be. Yeah. I think that what we want is to enflesh the word. And tattooing seems a short circuit, a shortcut way of enfleshing the word. Even if the tattoo is of a scripture verse. <laughs> Especially if it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, right, but that's just a... You might be careful in what you say, because it does sound a little condemning. So when you talk like that, people will be like, well, Leviticus says Christians can't have tattoos, and here I am a Christian. No, I don't, I don't mean it in that way. I, I know you don't, but some people might take it that way. I'm actually, and I, I'm a little vague on it, but Michael Foucault talks about uh, tattooing in one of his books, and I, 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 you know, in the imagery is, we do we do have this sense of being alienated in in our language, in our words, and I think there is an impetus to inhabit the word. Uh, you know, again, maybe I'm being too deep here about something that's more simple than that. I think we've all seen people who just literally they're addicted to tattooing. They want the word to be imprinted and they want to be found in the word. They want to inhabit the word. Like put more meaning. They want to find more meaning. Yeah. Yeah. But sometimes tattoos are Yeah. <laughs> My own daughter has a tattoo. She revealed to me on the day of her wedding. Because her wedding dress came down and I said, what is that? I didn't know <laughs> that she had gotten a tattoo. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.